Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the UCLA Center for History and Policy at UCLA, where we study change to make change. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and also direct the Luskin Center for History and Policy. And I'm pleased, pleased to welcome you to this episode of Then and Now. Our goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and our podcast reflects the same by tracing the link between then and now. We're very pleased today to have as our guest, Alex Villanueva, who in November 2018 defeated incumbent Jim McDonald in a stunning upset to become the 33rd sheriff of the County of Los Angeles. As such, Sheriff Villanueva, who rose up through the ranks of the Sheriff's Department over a 30-year career, presides over one of the largest law enforcement agencies in the country with some 18,000 personnel and a budget more than $3.5 billion, $3.5 billion. It's a huge and challenging job. And indeed, Sheriff Villanueva's first 18 months in office have been eventful, controversial, and marked by tensions with the County Board of Supervisors, which has been critical of a number of the Sheriff's personnel decisions, as well as uh, budgetary matters within the department. And these tensions reached a peak at the end of March when the Board of Supervisors decided to remove Sheriff Villanueva as head of the county's emergency operations center. These tensions between the supervisors and the sheriff seem at once structural and personal, a tug of war between two centers of power with large personalities at play. These tensions are also historical. Uh, So we learned in the first episode of Then and Now when former supervisor Zeb Yaroslavsky spoke about the history of relations between the Board of Supervisors and the Sheriff's Office. Someone in the Sheriff's Office heard the podcast and asked if the Sheriff could come on to offer uh, his point of view, and we are really delighted to have you with us, Sheriff Villanueva. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, David. I appreciate the opportunity. Great. So as you know, we're devoted to studying the past, and the good news is you are a student of the past. You're a student of history. So I promise we will get to the present, but I'd like to take a step back and gain some historical perspective on where we are today and learn a little bit more about you in the process. So first, I read that you especially appreciate historical figures who prevail against long odds. Can you give us an example of such a figure who has inspired you? Actually, I'm going to go back to the Civil War and a major general by the name of Chamberlain. He was a Medal of Honor winner, one of the very first Congressional Medal of Honor winners. And in the Battle of Little Round Top, he was outnumbered by the Confederate Army, probably eight to one. The only thing he had going in his advantage, he had high ground. And uh, you have to realize that he was a major general by default and through battlefield promotions, but he was an English teacher in New England. So he, he didn't come up through the traditional West Point Academy and all of that uh, history behind him. He was just an English teacher, but he was a very skilled leader. And he had his, uh, in the Battle of Little Round Top, if I recall, they were, uh, they were resting. They were, they were in high ground on top of a hill, and they were surrounded, and the Confederate Army 
was uh, marching on them and they were advancing uphill towards their position. They were outnumbered. And he uh, did what was known at the time as a wheel formation. And using high ground, he led the charge with his bayonet and spears and they, they charged downhill towards a, a force that outnumbered him about eight to one. He was shot through and through with a, during the process. And there was a bayonet, it was swords, it was close fighting. And the Confederate Army was so shocked by the, by the, uh, the attack and the decisiveness of the attack and the formation that they ended up being defeated, even though they were outnumbered, they outnumbered the uh, Union soldiers eight to one. So this very humble English uh, teacher went on to win the Medal of Honor in the process. And is this an historical figure with whom you identify personally in terms of your own career trajectory? Um, in a sense, because I can identify the humble beginnings. And uh, when you're faced in a position where you have to make decisions, you have to make very important decisions. And you have to, at some point, you have to take the fate of the organization on your shoulders and lead the charge. Well, that's, uh, that's where I can relate to, to his actions on that, uh, that fateful day. Right. So I want to explore, if we can, another idea that um, emerged in my reading about you. Um, I should say that you yourself are a most interesting figure. Um, you're uh, a sheriff's deputy who rose up through the ranks to become a lieutenant. Um, but you also earned a master's degree and a doctorate in public administration from the University of Laverne. Um, and I understand that in the course of your studies and reading, you came across uh, and resonated with the work of the renowned Yale psychologist, Irving Janus, who is famous for studying and diagnosing groupthink, which is a tendency toward conformism that can paralyze and skew decision-making in an organization. And I'm interested to know what uh, role Janus's work on groupthink had in your own thinking and in your own uh, career path. Well, his, his work was very fundamental because it, you know, in, in illustrating the, the faults of groupthink and uh, the belief that somehow there's, a, there's a invincibility within a group setting, there's infallibility. And then they also seek to censure dissenting points of view. And by, dis, by censuring those dissenting points of view, they embrace what it was called the groupthink, but they embrace the idea that they can't be wrong. And if you use that uh, process into the Challenger tragedy, for example, and the decision whether to launch or not, and then the O-rings, and then what the conditions were right for that, and then you could see it was a classical example of groupthink in action and the profound tragedy that resulted from it. In fact, there's a very classical study, and the fact they did a documentary on it, it was very well, uh, very well received, very well done, and it just shows you in groupthink and play and the outcome that it derives from that. And it's just something we have to be very well aware of. And when I was a, a young uh, sergeant on the department, and that was when Sheriff Baca was in office and a certain uh, division chief at the time by the name of Paul Tanaka took over an important function personnel in the sheriff's department. And I could see unfolding what was happening because all of a sudden people were unwilling to challenge bad or unethical decisions that were coming out of personnel. People were willing to cheat on promotional exams and alter the entire content of exams 
and to arrange for people who flunk tests to pass. And then I realized at that scale that they're willing to, to cheat for that or to, you know, engage in unethical decision-making, that bode very poorly for the organization as a whole. And as it turned out, I was right on the money because just this is 2003, 2004, fast forward eight years, and you have the Citizens Commission on Jail Violence, and you have all the problems that happened in the jail system where people were running amok and they were not being held accountable for using excessive force. You had an FBI investigation that they were actively obstructing, which led to all those convictions and, uh, and the loss of reputation of the Sheriff's Department in the eyes of the law enforcement community and the community at large. And we failed to ignore the warning signs. So is it your sense that groupthink has really uh, been an endemic part of the culture of both the sheriff's department and maybe county government more generally? And it might explain for some of the tensions that you've encountered in the course of your short tenure as sheriff? I would say at the county side, it's, it's something that's going on right now. And it's, it's troubling. It's very concerning. Within our organization now, we've actually moved past that group thing, thankfully. And people can uh, disagree openly, and there's a place to, to properly and respectfully air your disagreements. And when we arrive at a decision, we have all of the dissenting voices factored into the decision-making process. But uh, if you go back to Janice himself, you know, you have the issues of invulnerability, the irrational, you know, rationale for decisions, they believe in their own morality of their decisions. They succumb to peer pressure, their self-censorship. And there's an illusion of unanimity, which is uh, something very scary because everybody believes they're, they're right because everyone else agrees that they're right. But if I talk to individual supervisors, I get one story. But then when you see all five together working as a board in the hall, you know, in, in the hearing room, it's an entirely different animal. And you wonder, wait a minute, what's, I don't understand the difference between their individual perspective, yet when they act as a group, you get an entirely different thing. Got it. So I want to talk about the current manifestation of that uh, relationship, but uh, let's just take a step back and think historically. How do you see from what you know, and indeed from your own personal involvement in the work of the department, how do you see the history of relations between the sheriff's office and the supervisors? What, what's the arc of that? A historical narrative to you? Well, there's always been some tension, and um, in actuality, that tension can be creative. It can be a purpose or useful, because you have to have checks and balances. You have to have a separation of powers. You can't have one entity have control over absolutely everything, because then, then we run into trouble. Because remember, the Board of Supervisors is both the executive branch and the legislative branch combined for county government. That should give you pause as a student of history when you have two branches that are melded into one. And the only thing opposite of that is a judicial branch. So almost uh, de facto by, uh, by default, the sheriff is that one uh, elected voice that can provide that dissent, can provide that opposing point of view and have a basis of political power base that it can oppose and rightfully so the unethical decision-making of the Board of Supervisors. Short of that, no one else will, will stand in the way. And that's what leads us into trouble. I suppose that is one way to see it. I mean, it is a kind of organizational curiosity that the supervisors are both executive and judiciary. But it seems to me there's also something unusual about 
the status of the sheriff, which is, as you know very well, the office is enshrined in the state constitution, which calls for an elective county sheriff. And to the outside observer, that seems unusual that uh, a law enforcement uh, operation, the head of law enforcement in um, a particular jurisdiction um, has that autonomous status. Um, the chief of police um, in Los Angeles does not have that same status. And I'm wondering how you see that degree of autonomy um, and actually whether how it works in terms of oversight of the sheriff's department, which in years past has been sorely lacking. Well, you know, so I'm glad you bring that up because the oversight that was lacking in the sheriff's department, and remember, under the, the administration of Sheriff Baca and Paul Tanaka, people within the organization, myself included, we went to the Board of Supervisors. We were begging for them to intervene, begging for them to hold Baca and Tanaka accountable. And they said there was nothing they could do, that it was not their business, and it's just the way it was. And there was a lot of effort devoted to lobbying the Board of Supervisors to intervene to get the district attorney at the time to intervene. And everyone was busy looking the other way and saying, it's not my job. And it was only when the FBI, an outside federal entity, got involved that all of a sudden the, you know, the ball started picking up steam and the Citizens Commission on Jail Violence was formed. But remember, that was after the FBI was already busy uh, holding the sheriff accountable. So it was kind of safe to come out of the hiding then and form a commission, but what held the department accountable was not the CCJV, it was an intervention of the federal government. What ideally do you think should be the nature of the relationship between the supervisors and the sheriff, particularly in terms of oversight? Um, after all, they do provide you with your budget, they're on the hook for any litigation directed against your office for abuses. Um, shouldn't they have the right to oversee you? They have the right to oversee the budget. That is exactly how the state constitution is designed. However, the state constitution uh, enshrines the authority of the sheriff of each county, of the 58 counties, the investigative uh, function of, of crime. And that is a very large authority. And there's a lot of case law already on the books about the, the breadth and scope of that authority. The same thing with the district attorney. They have the rights enshrined by statute for the prosecutorial authority. And when you have politics from the Board of Supervisors intervening in both the investigation of crime and the prosecution of crime, that's when you have a corruption reared its ugly head. And that's when the, the powerful never held accountable for their misdeeds because you know they can they can buy a politician. That's that's pretty easy these days. Especially because you consider how much it takes to run for public office campaign contributions, all these things. It's uh, the political establishment is well protected by the Board of Supervisors. And you need to have an opposing point of view. You need to have someone that stands up for the little guy and the ones that don't have the power. And my election proved that that works because the board was dead set on just replacing Central Jail with another facility. They were gonna move the female inmate population to Miraloma. And it was only because of my intervention that those programs were halted, because they would have been harmful. And that's just an example of the benefit of having that independent elected sheriff. So whom do you think in an ideal world the sheriff should be or is accountable to? Is there and should there be 
civilian oversight of the sheriff's department and who should uh, perform that function? Well, the sheriff is accountable to the people. The question is, who is the Board of Supervisors accountable to? It always seems to be the focus on holding the sheriff accountable that somehow uh, law enforcement is bad or there's that, that narrative out there. That, oh my God, we have to hold them accountable somehow. But we are the most accountable, transparent, and uh, if you go to, uh, let's, let's go to biology, you know, just by sheer survival, everything that we go through to survive as an organization the checks and balances that are internal to our department, not a single other county department has all of the infrastructure that we have in terms of oversight. When we have the Civilian Oversight Commission, when you have the Office of Inspector General working in their proper function to provide that oversight, it is definitely welcome, but it's a collaborative venture. Right now it's being used as a political tool just to beat up the Sheriff's Department to score points political points. So they lose that, that validity, that legitimacy when they're used for political purposes only. And when they work hand in hand with us and uh, we more than happy, we're an open book. Hey, you can see what we did. Take a look for it yourself. You're going to come to the same conclusion. That's when we're working the right way. Right. But I suppose sometimes oversight works that way in collaborative fashion. And sometimes when there is a rotten culture, as there has been in the past, uh, as you suggested in the department, Collaboration is not the order of the day, but rather careful, critical scrutiny. And, you know, I just want to get a sense from you about whether you think that principle of civilian oversight is essential to the proper functioning of, of your department. Well, I can tell you this. If you go to my website right now, lesd.org, you can go to uh, online and there's a, a transparency project. In fact, you can click on where it says transparency data. And you're going to see all kinds of information that previously was never available to the public at large. And uh, we've, we've come to the realization that the Inspector General, the Oversight Commission, or middlemen, we should be being transparent to the public. We give the information straight to the public. Everything that is not legally bound is public record. And my intention is to put the entire content of the department online for the public itself to consume. Not to, be, uh, not to be diluted through the political lens of people that want to use watchdogs as attack dogs. That is a difference. Right. So I know you came in with this mandate of making the work of the sheriff's department much more transparent. And I want to now turn more directly toward you. Um, you were a lieutenant in office, I believe, in Pico Rivera, supervising, I think, about 25 officers. Um, and then you had this idea... I want to be sheriff, um, which is a significantly larger job, uh, supervising um, 10,000 sheriffs and 8,000 sheriff's deputies and 8,000 civilian employees and a multi-million dollar budget. What were you thinking? Why did you want to become sheriff? Well, I, I had assisted um, Lee Baca when he ran for sheriff in 1998. I knew that the Sherman Block administration had lost their way and there needed to be change. But at the time, obviously, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. We didn't foresee what was going to happen with Paul Tanaka. And I assisted another gentleman to challenge um, Baca. That was back in 2006. It was a commander at the time, Barry Leva. And I also assisted another gentleman named Bob Olmsten back in 2014. So I had three different people that I helped to become sheriff. 
So being a student of, uh, of law enforcement, a student of leadership my entire life, being a commission officer in the National I have a very keen idea what good leadership is, and the scale is different. However, the principles are the same. Leading a small unit at 20 people versus leading an organization of 18,000 people, you have to do the exact same thing. You have to, one, focus on accomplishing your mission, your primary, your reason of existing. And you have to take care of your people. Under uh, Sheriff Jim McDonald, he was failing on both counts. Crime was rising steadily. The department was shrinking. Morale was in, in rock bottom. And we were losing more people than we were recruiting because people lost faith in his ability to lead the department. So that's when leadership is. You step up to the plane and say, I can get the job done. And we have done that. In 16 months, I have crime at historical lows. I have recruitment at historical highs. And we are turning the department around in every single way. And every single thing we're doing, we're being as transparent as we possibly can be. And we're setting a new standard. This COVID-19 uh, crisis, prime example of that. We knew early on in February there was going to be a big problem. So we gathered together with our, our staff from custody division. We figured we had to decompress the jail population. And we had to get it down to a point where it was defensible space that could be created so we could successfully isolate, quarantine, and treat those who could test positive. And we did it at a scale that no one in the entire nation has ever done or even contemplated doing. And we did it safely. And to date, today we have 21 inmates that have tested positive. We have 1,700 and change that are in quarantine as we speak. And that's out of a population of over 12,000 inmates. These are leadership things. These were taught early on. When I was an instructor of emergency management during my tenure as a sergeant on the department, we, we learned a lot of important lessons, and I taught them to the executive staff of the department at the time. Your solutions have to be equal to or greater than the size of the problem. And that is the current problem with the Office of Emergency Management in the county emergency uh, system, the infrastructure, as we speak. Well, you know, there seems to be um, something of a disconnect between the story you just told about your achievements and successes so far, and certainly the way it's perceived by the supervisors and even, I'd say, in the broader public. And I wonder if you would reflect on that by um, uh, considering that you came as a disruptor, you came to disrupt the system, um, you came to disrupt the groupthink that you thought had existed within the department. Um, in a certain sense, you're an anti-establishment guy in the most establishment job around as a law enforcement officer. And I wonder if that's how you imagine yourself as a disruptor who doesn't play by the normal rules of the game um, and really intends to shake things up. I wouldn't call myself a disruptor. I call myself uh, perhaps as a maverick, someone who's going to call it the way it is. And I deal in reality. And I'm a, I'm a Democrat, I'm a progressive, and uh, I'm, I'm leading an organization that is inherently very conservative in nature. And uh, for example, now everyone is outraged about the, our department's cooperation with ICE, when in fact, I kicked ICE out of the county jails, we rejected SCAP grant fundings. That was millions of dollars a year that we were receiving from the federal government while we were turning over all the database of our undocumented inmates to the federal government in exchange. It was blood money, but the Board of Supervisors had no problem accepting that blood money. 
my, the previous sheriffs had no problem selling out our undocumented inmates to the federal government, to ICE. And I put a stop to that. And that is leadership. And that is not, if it goes against the, the wills of the political establishment at the time, well, they were wrong. And the fact is that they have never acknowledged that they were wrong. And that they've never apologized to the undocumented and to the immigrant community at large for accepting that for so long. It was years after years of millions of dollars they were accepting while they were selling out these people. Didn't hear a word about that. Political establishment is very good at controlling the message, but the problem is they can't control the facts. and They can't control reality, but they can sell you that. And you know what got my, my staff to call you was some of the outrageous statements that came from Zdevio Roslowski. Remember, he referred him and the board as we. So that should tell you quite a bit about where he stands. And um, the point is that every single um, action I've taken as sheriff has been based on fact. And this is something you may not be aware of. The, the political establishment invested heavily in keeping Jim McDonald in office. He was endorsed by the Board of Supervisors. He was endorsed by Zev Yaroslavsky. In fact, Zev Yaroslavsky is his buddy. He got him onto the Citizens Commission on Jail Violence in the first place. And uh, he made the strange allegation that I tried to reverse the recommendations in the execution of the Blue Ribbon Commission on Jail Violence. And that he criticized me is that, that I called it somehow a social experiment gone bad. And well, see again, the facts never help his argument. I have not touched one single recommendation from the Citizens Commission on Jail Violence. Not one period or one comma from a single one. All right. So anybody who makes an allegation that we somehow changed them or did something to them or ignored them there, well, they apparently have checked their ethics at the door. Okay. And, I, and I'll challenge Mr. Yaroslavsky himself. He wants to debate me publicly on this issue. Jail violence was exploding under Jim McDonald's watch. Inmate on staff assault had increased 204%. Inmate assaulting each other had increased 31%. Uh, staff using force against inmates had increased 99%. All three categories of force were double digits off the charts. And you're trying to tell me somehow that that was okay or acceptable? We had deputies and custody assistants who were punching bags to inmates. And they had their hands tied because they were afraid to defend themselves for fear of losing their job. That it was an absolute failure and an embarrassment. And this, I'll say this message to um, former Sheriff Jim McDowell and to Xavier Oslowski. You were dead wrong. The board supervisor was dead wrong. We developed the facts. We showed the facts. The statistics came from the department. And then somehow I'm the bad guy for pointing out the obvious. So we, we didn't change any reform. What we did is figure out what went wrong. What did you think? if I can just ask about this Citizens Commission um, and its findings and recommendations. When you take a step back and reflect, what do you, what do you think about it? Do you think it um, had a good reason to come into existence? Um, do you think the culture required that kind of intervention? And do you think that the protections it proposed have, uh, have, have borne out? Most of the recommendations were good recommendations, most of them. What was very, very damaging was the implementation of them. That's where the wheels fell off the wagon. They never assessed the impact to the, the workforce when you start firing people, probationary employees, for defending themselves, for being assaulted by an inmate. That sends a very clear message that uh, don't defend yourself. 
So we pointed out the obvious. We addressed the implementation part. I told the staff, yes, you can defend yourself. However, once you put the handcuffs on, the fight's over. You don't get to play catch up. You don't get to use excessive force. I had to reassert that the line staff were in charge of the facility. If I tell the inmates, you don't have to listen to that deputy, you can go to the sergeant or the lieutenant. All I'm doing is telling the, the inmate that, hey, the deputy is no longer in charge. That was a very, very dumb idea and done in the nation's largest jail system. It had tragic results. I mean, if you see the injuries, they were complaining about the injuries of inmates with broken bones here and there, which is very true and very bad, but we couldn't substitute that with the broken bones of our staff. Right, and I guess that's part of the crux of the matter, maybe part of the gap between um, you know, what you are describing as your achievements and successes and, and public perceptions, because um, for much of the public, um, it seems like the focus on um, uh, protecting your uh, personnel, your deputies, dilutes and maybe even inverts the actual problem which which is to say the problem is not that deputies are dealt with too harshly, but the deputies treat suspects and the incarcerated too harshly. And that in fact, over time, there, there had been a culture of impunity and abuse in the sheriff's office. Yeah, well, you're familiar with the Hawthorne effect, right? Mm -hmm. In ob observational bias, people tend to react if they're under observation, they change their behavior. As early as 2010, 2011, there was a commander's management task force, four commanders who were devoted to bringing down use of force in the jail. And this is way before the Commission on Jail Violence, way before Sheriff Jim McDonald took office. And I was part of these uh, that, um, I was a new lieutenant in 2011, and I was working in, in the jail system. And we worked hard to bring those numbers down starting in 2011, not 2014, 2015, no, back in 2011, before the commission even finished their investigation and brought out their series of recommendations. And year after year, we were bringing down violence in large numbers, 50%, 60%. And we got it down to the point where it was a rarity, not a normalcy. So my first year in office, in spite of all the who and cry of, oh my God, I'm doing, undoing reforms, we brought down uh, inmates using violence against staff, came down 12%, I believe, no, 15%. Uh, deputies using staff against inmates came down another 10%. Inmates assaulting each other came down 11%. So we had double-digit drops in all three categories. And most important, we identified that jail violence is, three, is a three-legged stool. They thought it was just force against inmates. And they totally forgot about the other two components. Now we have our hands around the totality of the situation. And violence is going down. The standard of care is going up, and uh, now a level three force is an extremely rare event. So we're, we're on the right path, and that path happened because of the election, because of my willingness to step up to the plate and say, that is wrong, and this is the reason why it is wrong. Now, the political establishment, and they have the access to all of the media resources, and they can paint, oh my God, the sky is falling, but now actually we're driven by hard data. In facts. What do you think the motivation of those with whom you have had conflicts uh, is? Um, and I, I guess I would include in that the supervisors themselves, uh, but you've also had uh, its tensions with um, the inspector general in your own office um, in August 2019, 
Um, there was uh, a report issued by the uh, inspector general that you blocked access to information. And then shortly thereafter, the sheriff's department launched a criminal investigation against the inspector general. Um, so what's going on that, um, that you think motivates them? Um, and I guess, you know, a, 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 you take leadership seriously. And one of the cardinal principles of good leadership is to imagine how things look through the eyes of your foil, uh, your, your, your rival, your opponent. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you could reflect on what you think they see when they look at you um, and why that might be um, a different picture than the one you portray. Well, I can tell you this. They looked at looking through their lens. I shocked the world in June of 2018 when I got past the primary and I held uh, the incumbent under 50%. But something happened there that the public is unaware of. And you're probably going to be one of the first people to, be, to know this. The outgoing administration and the Board of Supervisors through, their, um, through the Office of Inspector General and former and current members of the Inspector General's office initiated a uh, data breach of personnel files within the organization. This, I, I was a retired lieutenant running for public office. I had no idea that the Inspector General and the Constitutional Policing Advisors of my predecessor were already opening a file on me and going through all of my personnel files and including the personnel files of anyone who was associated with my campaign or the people identified as volunteers or on my transition team. And this accelerated all the way up to the, the weekend before I took office on December 3rd. And it was breathtaking in scope. That was the genesis of the criminal investigation that was launched. It was launched way before Mr. Huntsman complained about any access or lack of access to anything of our department. And we were doing our job, doing an inquiry to see exactly what was the size of this problem and uh, what potential laws have been violated in the process. But we were targeted to be defeated during the campaign using a illegally obtained uh, database. And once I took office, the Board of Supervisors had no intention of allowing me to do perform my functions unfettered from their criticism. They had a very detailed plan to harm me publicly, harm my reputation. Which Board of Supervisors in their right mind would sue a new sheriff two months into office? without exhausting every other administrative remedy and get to that point, to work collaboratively, to resolve differences, to understand the facts. Now, fast forward to the debacle today with the, with the emergency management, and it came very crystal, crystal clear. They have no intention of, one, me succeeding as sheriff, and their goal since the very start has been to make me a one-term sheriff. That is their express goal. Every single action they have taken designed to harm my reputation and to question my legitimacy as sheriff. It sounds almost like a conspiracy. Do you see it as that? I mean, when you, think, when you talk about the data breach, you, you suggest a degree of uh, intentionality to thwart your path. Oh, it is, very, it is very intentional. I used to harbor the illusion that perhaps maybe it's just some misunderstandings, but event after event, they go out of their way to engage in offensive actions to harm. And I can go, 
um, event after event with the OIG or, or the COC, but I won't bore you with those details. But take the lawsuit as one. Go to um, October, November with the budget issue, and they made this big public uh, display of, oh my God, the sheriff is mismanaging his budget and he's overspent his monies and so forth. We improved the budget of the department to the tune of $40 million for my predecessor's uh, budget forecast. We were in better shape, yet when he owed $101 million, it was not a problem. They just swept it under the rug. No public comment, nothing at all. Uh, fast forward a year to October of 2019 in November, they made a big dog and pony show and they publicly released slides in their presentation that were fake that showed that somehow in November of 2018, the Sheriff's Department's uh, balance was at zero, that we were not over budget. And that was physically, mathematically impossible. And I realized, wow, these people like to play dirty. And that, that's scary. Then you go to the Woolsey Fire. You look at the Woolsey Fire report, there's not a single mention of the role of the Sheriff or what the Sheriff did or failed to do in the report. But somehow they draw the conclusion, yeah, we got to replace the sheriff with the CEO. You can read through the entire report. You won't come up with that, uh, that piece of information. I, I, I challenge you, read it cover to cover and come up with that idea. You won't, because it's not there. And the sheriff who was in charge at the time was the other guy. wasn't me. There, there's a reason for what they do. And everything is designed to destabilize, to harm the reputation of the sheriff's department in the eyes of the public. And we have plenty of documented evidence of that. When they removed the sheriff as a director of emergency operations, they also removed all of the knowledge and the, the independent or a separation of powers, the checks and balances with county government. Now you have the CEO as a director of emergency operations, but the CEO is in crisis mode with the lack of funding of county government as a whole. So now she has to have her entire time devoted to figuring out what happens with county government. So who's running the show with emergency management? And then they're going to say, oh, it's a health crisis. It's going to be a Department of Public Health or the Department of Health Services. Still, it is far bigger than that now. You have how many millions of people now are, have food insecurity? Heck, you had that problem before the, the pandemic started. Now you lost, uh, what, 1.3 million people have lost their job in L.A. County? You have food banks running out of food. You have distribution lines are running out of food. You have uh, production, meat production facilities. They're now being shut down because of the pandemic. You have a large scale problem on your hand that can, a humanitarian problem that could eclipse the size of the health problem. But that's when they decided that they didn't have to follow the incident command system, that this is going to be an island, a silo, that it's a health problem and everybody else is just going to react to what. Uh, the health folks do. It doesn't work that way. Incident command system encompasses everybody in a unified command in an operational section that has all the, all the leaders of each major section that is a player in the process. It's a collaborative effort, and that's, that's what's happening right now. Right. So in terms of collaboration, I mean, I, I, I've listened carefully to what you said and um, understand the importance of collaboration and also understand your perspective that there's been this kind of... Um, conspiracy really against you. And um, I wonder, you know, one of the hallmarks of good leadership is the ability to 
look in oneself and see if one might have done things differently. And I wonder, you know, if you've had such moments um, and you've been certainly encouraged to do so by all of the attention focused on your decision to attempt to reinstate your uh, associate, former deputy Karen Karl Mandayan. And I wonder if, you know, you can reflect on things that you might have done differently. For example, was that a mistake? Um, certainly the optics of it seemed to send the wrong message um, at the time you first came into office. I wonder how you reflect on what part in this uh, fraught relationship with the supervisors uh, you play. I'm glad you, you brought that up because that is one question I've, I've, uh, I've asked myself that. And uh, I think from a strategic standpoint, I could have done things in a different order. However, there were six people that were brought back, not one. Three of them were by orders of the Civil Service Commission. One of them was a statute of limitations violation. One of them was at the behest of one of uh, Jim McDonald's former executives. And then the last but not least was the Carl Mendoyan case. And here's the part, remember I, I mentioned that data breach? Well, that data breach, turns out they used a bad decision from the Jim McDonald uh, administration. The Mendoyan case was not a termination case by McDonald's own executive's admission. We have all of the emails, we have all the documents. It was never a termination case. It became a termination case after the fact and they concealed exculpatory evidence. There was massive due process violation. And all of this came to light when we did our review of the case. And we brought this to the attention of the Board of Supervisors. It's not like we just sat on this. We had a very deliberative process. We had a whole ad hoc committee that reviewed the case from cover to cover. We came up with all the evidence and realized that, no, this was, a, this was a bad decision. We brought it to the attention of the Board of Supervisors, and we ex exercised the same authority that the previous administration exercised 14 times. 14 times. There was no lawsuit by the Board of Supervisors against the previous administration. There was no dog and pony show or oh my God moments of the Board of Supervisors. How could he this? How could he that? But the point is, they burned an innocent man at the stake and they want to somehow accept that we just want to pave it over and let's move on because it's too troubling to reconcile and admit that the person was innocent all along. And we have the facts to show it. And now we prepared a report very carefully. The OIG issued their 34-page uh, regurgitation of the McDonald administration case. We went and looked at all of the source documents in the very beginning. We covered all the evidence that they ignored, and we presented it, and it's now accessible to the public on our website, so they can read for it themselves. But you can see that was one of six cases. And I kicked myself for not recognizing what was lying in wait for me by innocently saying, okay, we're just going to correct the record and do the right thing. Right. Though in the back and forth between the two accounts, um, the impression was formed in the public eye that you were protecting your buddies and indifferent to things like domestic violence. That was actually quite the opposite. In fact, any public official or any member of the board of supervisors who would even float the idea that we don't take domestic violence seriously in of itself is someone who doesn't take domestic violence seriously because you're trying to convince the public, uh, I guess, not to report domestic violence to the sheriff's department because they don't take domestic violence seriously. That is a message that was sent out. And that's what the public at large was consuming. The press conference I had yesterday 
I reference our concern about domestic violence. In fact, we have three groups that we're concerned about. We're concerned about um, SCARS reporting, child abuse, because we don't have our mandated reporters seeing kids on a daily basis. They're all at home now. Our elder, we have issues of elderly abuse. Now we don't have family visiting folks in the retirement homes to have eyes on them to see how they're being cared for. And then we have an uptick in domestic violence, 8.3% increase in domestic violence reporting. And we, we arrest and we enforce domestic uh, violence by the thousands every year. But you can't take a bad case that was never filed. There was no evidence of domestic violence. In fact, it was cooked and altered. You can't use that as an excuse to try to fire someone and then retroactively justify it by claiming, oh, this is all about domestic violence, so don't worry about the details. No, facts matter in everything we do. And it's a disservice to every real victim of domestic violence if we violate due process, because that means people that are guilty also get free. Right. Public impressions also matter. And, you know, as I think of your tenure, your very eventful tenure, there are a couple of uh, narrative threads that we can identify. One is that um, you're fighting an uphill battle against a recalcitrant establishment. Another is that you pick a fight at every turn and you basically protect your friends in the department. A third is that you've not done a good job of explaining yourself well enough. And I'm wondering, where does the truth lie? A little bit of eat. Number one was... Uh, You're fighting an uphill battle against a recalcitrant establishment. It's true. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting that uphill battle. I'm playing five-on-one basketball. But then I realized that it doesn't matter, really. What matters is what the public thinks. What matters is how the department serves the community. And, and keeping my eye on the ball, we're right now, as I indicated, we have record low crime rates, record uh, high hiring rates, and uh, we're addressing all the problems of the past. We have a policy now in place for uh, the bans of formation of uh, deputy subgroups as something that all previous sheriffs refused to touch. We're uh, doing a lot of different things. Change is hard, and uh, that's for sure. And uh, the political establishment is, re is always resistant to change, particularly when they've had a hand in shaping the, the status quo. And on your, um, what was your second point? The second was that you um, have gotten into conflict. You're picking fights at every turn, and you're protecting your buddies. The third is that you haven't explained yourself well enough. Well, I've done, uh, I've terminated 35 employees in my first year in office. And uh, every single one, we've added a layer of review. In the past, the sheriff didn't review them personally. I review the case personally myself after it goes through the executives, after it goes through the internal affairs process and the division chiefs. Then it goes to the executives. So I'm the last the last signature on a termination case. And I want to make sure all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed. And I've done it 35 times already. Terminating people for lying, for perjury, for domestic violence, for uh, drug use, for a, a bevy of different things and uh, false documents. And so if someone says that I'm protecting my buddies, how do I do that by, by firing 35 people? It doesn't equate. But the political establishment is easy to say, oh my God, he's covering for his buddies. No, we're not going to cover anybody. And uh, your third point was? 
Oh, you haven't explained yourself well enough that you have a relations problem. You're in the pages of the LA Times every week, um, usually around a crisis point, a uh, point of tension. How's, how's, how's your PR been? I, I'm glad you bring up the, the LA Times because we did a meta-analysis of the LA Times coverage of the Sheriff's Department. In four years of the Jim McDonald administration, they did 46 articles referencing the Sheriff's Department and 34 were classified as negative coverage. My first year in office, 2019, they did 64 articles, of which 93 were classified as negative. 93%, are you saying? 93%. We'd give them information that we know was newsworthy, and we give it to the media. The, the television media would report it. Other publications would report it. LA Times wouldn't even touch it. And uh, it's, it's kind of almost comical. So I don't use the Times as any measure of what I'm doing right or wrong or even uh, truthful reporting. They have a very biased agenda, unfortunately. And we can deliver the facts right up their nose, and they will just refuse because it doesn't conform to what they believe. So. As we move towards conclusion, I want to ask you two questions that return us to the sphere of history. Um, and the first is, how do you see your own role historically um, within uh, the institution that you now lead and within county government in general? Well, here's something that the Board of Supervisors, in their zeal to uh, try to basically kill me politically, they fail to realize. As a progressive, as a Democrat, the first Democrat sitting as sheriff in 138 years, someone like me doesn't come by very often. And uh, the fact that I understand the role of a deputy, because I have walked more than a mile in the shoes of a deputy in every position in custody and control and specialized assignments, I know uh, how they think, why they do, what motivates them to do their job. And I also know what the community expects in terms of law enforcement, what the community wants in terms of transparency and just basic uh, public service, you know, public safety. We're the most understaffed and least policed agency in the entire nation. And in that environment where we're so understaffed, the least thing we should be doing is beating up local law enforcement because we're, we're adhering to some agenda that's on the far left. And if I'm getting uh, castigated by the far left and the far right, I think I'm right where I need to be, which is smack dab in the middle, which is serving the community, providing due process both to the criminal uh, suspects and to our employees. They're both deserving of that due process. I know Zeb Yaroslavsky said somehow that, uh, that the U.S. Constitution is social experiment gone bad. And that's totally misquoted what I said. But I'm a firm believer in constitutional rights and the 14th Amendment due process is extremely important in every single thing we do. And how can I demand that my deputies in patrol honor the due process of everyone they detain if I can't respect their own due process rights? It's a two-way street. And I recognize, I understand that, and I'm delivering on that. So we are literally moving the needle in terms of changing the culture of the organization. We're all about civic engagement. How can we serve the communities out there in patrol? And in the past, it was just drive-by justice, windows rolled up, and people didn't want to even go out of their vehicles and make contact because they were afraid that they were going to catch a complaint and then they're going to be sitting on the bench. 
So we're, we're moving the needle, we're getting the department to engage with the community, we're improving transparency, and along the way, I'm making my, my time in office extremely relevant to changing the future of law enforcement. So in light of the changes that you have uh, spoken of and that you're attempting to bring um, to the office, um, and indeed um, you have uh, indeed brought change that has, um, uh, that has uh, caused tensions along the way, um, I wonder as a final question whether you can reflect on what you think it's most valuable to learn from the past. Well, the relevance. The most valuable thing is relevance, and uh, I'll give you I'll give you an example of relevance. In uh, on May fifth, we had a Cinco de Mayo celebration in Lake Los Angeles. We did it on horseback, and we got to a point in Lake Los Angeles, in the middle of nowhere, in the north end ends of the county. It was hot. There was a paletero pushing his his cart, selling paletas in the heat up a hill. We got off our horses and we helped the guy push his cart up the hill. That is that is really getting down and dirty and working shoulder to shoulder with the community. Mr. Yaroslavsky had this nice story about his uh, rubbing shoulders with uh, Prince Charles. I think it was Prince Philip. Yeah, I think it was Prince Philip. Yeah, Prince Philip, not Prince Charles, Prince Philip. And uh, that's a contrast between who I am. I work with the community. I'm part of the community. I've never lost sight of the community, the line staff of the department, how we interact with the community. And the political establishment is still mesmerized by their encounters with Prince Philip. And uh, my focus is always going to be with the community. And that's why that perspective is so important. And that's the perspective of my predecessor. I'll go back to Sheriff Martin Aguirre. In the flood of 1888, he rescued 19 people out of the raging LA River, and he did by horseback, one by one. And he was blind in one eye, by the way, as he did this. And his last trip, he got knocked over by a tree. He got taken downstream. He was holding on to a mother and a little daughter. And uh, he, uh, they managed to pull him out downstream. They pulled the mother out, but they never found the daughter. And that was a sheriff of the past. But that was uh, the standard that he set for the job that you just have to shake your head and go, wow, characters like that don't exist today. But in today's environment, we can find different ways to be courageous. And sometimes it's moral courage is just as important as physical courage. And this job of sheriff, my entire tenure has been about moral courage. When I told Ibaka and Paul Tanaka, you can't do that. It's against the law and it's going to lead us to a bad, very bad place. They laughed and ignored me. They're both convicted uh, felons right now, serving time in federal prison. When I tell the board of supervisors, stand down and do your job ethically, I mean it. And uh, I don't hesitate, I don't bat an eye. We're gonna continue our criminal investigation. It's not in my hands, it's in the hands of uh, other people. And when it reaches conclusion, it'll be whatever it may be. It may exonerate people, it may convict people, but that's why we have a criminal justice system where everyone is accountable to the rule of law, even supervisors. Well, Sheriff Alex Villanueva, thank you so much for your candid and informative views and for this conversation on Then and Now. Really appreciate your making time out of your busy schedule. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and to clarify my record. It's not an easy one, but you're doing a, a wonderful job in terms of that. And keep it going because I think you're off to a rousing good start. Thank you very much. 
Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. You can find the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let us know your thoughts on this and other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu, L-U-S-K-I-N center at history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, this is David Myers wishing you a healthy and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.